for so many, whether it's individuals or governments, our biggest problem seems to be that active denial, our um, unwillingness to face the change that's going on out there and to ascribe, uh, to downplay it or ascribe it to other forces. Hello and welcome to Password123, a cyber podcast produced by UNSW Canberra. In this podcast, we explore a range of topics from the world of cyber and speak to some of the most influential figures in the InfoSec community. My name is Tom Sear and I'm an industry fellow at UNSW Canberra Cyber at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Many of our listeners will already know today's guest. P.W. Singer is an official mad scientist and has been named by the Smithsonian as one of America's 100 leading innovators. He joined me to talk about what happens when war goes online and the online world goes to war. Yes, I'm interested in how, what you see as the technological threats of the immediate future and perhaps in the longer term. When we're looking at the technologies that matter, uh, you can think of them as either evolutionary technology or revolutionary technology. By that I mean there's technologies that are a little bit better in some way, a plane that goes a little bit further, a missile that goes a little bit faster. Those aren't truly the ones that matter. Instead, they're the revolutionary ones, the disruptive ones, the ones that are called killer apps. That is, they're the ones that give us new, not just merely capabilities that were unimaginable a generation earlier, but they also present new questions that we don't have the answer for. And it's questions of not just merely what's possible, but also what's proper. That is, it um, new issues of right and wrong and everything from the right and wrong way to train and equip your military to legal or ethical right and wrong questions that were once science fiction that are now real. Uh, so those are the, the way I kind of frame it, right? You know, they're technologies that truly change the game. Um, if we're doing a survey of that, I think they fall into a couple of core areas. And what's notable is this is different than a past where you might have just had one new technology area. Instead, we've got uh, key areas of change in hardware, specifically robotics, even more specifically autonomous robotics. Uh, we have in software uh, the shift in the internet to the internet of things. Um, we have big data, uh, but we also, most perhaps most importantly, have artificial intelligence. A um, lot of different definitions around AI. For me, it's essentially a machine that is um, conducting decision-making in some way that uh, matches or surpasses um, human decision-making. It might be able to take in more data. It might be able to make the decision quicker. It might be able to come to uh, ideas that humans wouldn't otherwise find on their own. However, it, it, it's that's what we're getting at. Um, we have the area of, um, I call it wetware. Uh, so if you have hardware, software, wetware is human performance modification, using technology to change us in some way. And that might be uh, technology you know, in the body to literally using it to you know, change kind of the underlying um, software of the human body itself. When you think about some of the things going on in terms of um, uh, the biosciences. Um, you could uh, potentially put in waveware as a third category if you think about new energy forms coming on the line, um, but also uh, even the idea of energy as a form of weapon. Um, you know, that was sci-fi. It's now uh, becoming real with directed energy weapons. 
Um, but I think what's notable is, you know, as you go through each of these areas, it's also how they connect and cross. So, um, you know, in history, the example would be the Blitzkrieg uh, that the Germans used to, um, you know, win the early years of World War II. The Blitzkrieg was a story of the tank, but it was also a story of the airplane. It was also the story of wireless communication radio. Um, what are the equivalents moving forward where, you know, you're bringing things going on in hardware with robotics and tying in um, artificial intelligence or, you know, shifts in energy? Um, uh, example there would be there's been some, um, there's some projects on drones uh, you know, already kind of a revolutionary technology, a robotic plane, but by changing the energy source of them uh, to, for example, a hydrogen solar mix, you have a plane that can, it's not just that it's robotic, it might be able to stay up in the air, not hours, not days, not weeks, years. Suddenly we're talking about something totally different here. Um, or, you know, uh, 3D printing, direct digital manufacturing. That's kind of the story of hardware and software coming together, but it leads to a whole new manufacturing process that, of course, leads to new questions of you know, everything from um, intellectual property to uh, Defense Department acquisitions, where you know, now we have uh, a soldier can manufacture part of their own kit. Um, that's, that's incredible. It leads to new questions. Should they be allowed to do it? Who owns it? All that kind of stuff. But that to me is, you know, sort of a short uh, version of um, how I think about technology and, and what it's doing to the realm of conflict moving forward. And so when we're talking about uh, like persistent or consistent multi-vector, multi-factor change, what can we learn or think about change in terms of technology and how should we respond to it? Like what's the concept? How do we define change and how do we respond most effectively to change with that awareness? Mm, it's a real, the question of how to respond to uh, technologic change is um, you know, something that, that everyone wrestles with, uh, whether it is national government to organizations, be they the military, to corporations, to parents, uh, individuals. We're all wrestling with this, right? Um, you know, and, and break it down into the area. You know, uh, what does um, the shift towards social media mean? And then, well, what does it mean for um, the nation of Australia that has a cybersecurity strategy, uh, but really doesn't have a strategy for this realm of um, disinformation, misinformation, um, uh, those kinds of threats that aren't about hacking the network, but they're about hacking the people on the network, right? Um, you know, if you frame cybersecurity as only about protecting email, well, you'd miss what has been done to sabotage uh, over 20 different elections around the world, right? Um, but social media impact that also has hit militaries. Um, and everything from you know what's the information out there to be collected about them or about their adversary to how to influence again you know all the way down to tactical military operations to corporations um, how do you tell your story now you don't merely tell your story on radio or on TV you've got to be in social media um, you also face threats to it um, a number of corporations have been targeted by these campaigns to uh, boycott them or drive down their share price to any parent, any teenager is wrestling with, you know, what social media has done to their lives, their views of the world. Um, so, uh, you know, it hits everyone. 
Um, okay, what do we do about it? Well, I think a key issue is not to be in active denial. Um, and active denial is a kind of an intended double meaning term. You know, there's the Russian, uh, it, it describes literally the Russian um, information warfare strategy, but also just our sense of denial, right? Um, when you face these changes, uh, you know, the worst thing you can do is put up the blinders. Um, so then identify what are the changes, what are the trends out there, um, are there historic parallels to them? Uh, what are the ways that you can potentially shape that trend in a more positive direction? Uh, so, you know, some of the shifts may have to be in education. Um, you need to understand certain elements of it. Some of the shifts may have to be in your um, organization, um, how you're structured, what do you prioritize? Um, some of it may have to be shifts in culture. That's the hardest one to master um, but you know culture kind of uh, is influenced by the incentives that we give so you know let's look at it we're looking at an issue of a military um, militaries are uh, for a lot of good reasons resistant to change um, but you you can't even if the top general says this is our new policy if the organizational culture is one where you know, the, the colonels who cling to the old are the ones that are getting promoted, then the new policy isn't going to be implemented. You've got to have it reflecting the career reward structure. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different ways of going out of this. I'm, I'm kind of uh, uh, you know, free-forming on it, but I circle back to that notion. For so many, whether it's individuals or governments, our biggest problem seems to be that active denial, our um, unwillingness to face the change that's going on out there and to ascribe, uh, to downplay it or ascribe it to other forces. So go back to that example of social media. Um, you know, in the United States, our active denial extends from, I mean, we've got a White House that um, two years after uh, this significant um, foreign government attack on American democracy did not hold a single public cabinet meeting on election security for two years. And then when it finally held it two years later, it was focused on hacking of voting machines, which is exactly what didn't happen. Um, it was the hacking of the voter environment, right? Um or the platform companies themselves. You know, you can see the, the Facebooks of the world going through this kind of period of originally denial. <sighs> it's a pretty crazy idea, to quote Mark Zuckerberg, that, you know, there'd been foreign government disinformation and fake news, and then it had swayed people's votes, um, to going from that denial to, hey, remember when we said it wasn't that big a deal? Actually, 143 million Americans were exposed to Russian government propaganda unknowingly on Facebook. You know, they've, so they've gone from denial to now they're kind of in, in bargaining mode. Um, we now realize this, so here's all the stuff that we're doing, so you don't have to make us do all this other stuff. We'd rather not do it. And again, you could, that's, that's to look at it within kind of a, an election democracy framework. We could have a similar discussion around um, its impact on extremism, terrorism, something that, that, of course, has hit close to home here with the recent attacks in Christchurch. Um, but, you know, kind of what I'm getting at again is, there's this just initial problem of denial that we have to get over. And then from that, you can then flow into the, the other types of changes that are needed. And is that, is that something that you, like across the whole oeuvre of your work, um, is, it, is your work about change? And do you think you could see a pattern there across 
the, the spectrum of your own work? Mm. And are you a, how would you describe yourself a theorist of change in that sense? Or um, I've always been drawn to uh, topics where we're seeing some kind of change that doesn't fit the old rules, and yet there it is. And often we're in denial of either the existence of it or the the importance of it. And um, I've been drawn to those kind of topics. That's probably the thread that connects whether it was, you know, my first book was on uh, private military contractors. And, uh, you know, I remember at the, the, the time when I embarked on the project, I had a, um, a distinguished uh, security studies professor uh, say, you know, that idea is fiction. That, that's Hollywood-esque. He actually told me, he said, I should quit graduate school and go write movies instead for thinking about something absurd as private companies offering services in war for hire. You know, now post-Blackwater and, and all the other examples of it, um, you know, I, I think I was proven right. Um, a different example would be uh, I, I did a book on child soldier and warlord groups where, you know, we think of war as this, this realm of adults, but the numbers show that around 10% of the combatants in the world are children. That that has impact, particularly in, in conflicts where there are even a greater percentage. Um, the work on robotics, um, you know, was something that seemed like science fiction, and yet we were seeing it more and more. Um, I, you know, my fun Australia version of that is when I came here about 10 years ago, um, I had a, a bit of an argument with a senior um, Australian Air Force officer who, you know, said, well, the Australian military is never, ever going to buy drones. Um, and, you know, I think you have since. Um, uh, to, I did a book on cybersecurity that, that I think people realized the importance of cybersecurity, but they didn't well understand it. There was a lot of um, uh, mystery around it for the people that needed to know it, whether it was in government or in business. Um, and then, you know, more recently, this project on, on like war, um, you know, I think we were starting to sense the importance of social media, but not how it had been weaponized and, how, and, and the ways that it's utilized. And so breaking it down for people to understand and then importantly to understand that it's not just hitting one sector. So you have, you know, people who maybe were thinking about it in terms of terrorism, but missing what was going on in Elections or people that cared about elections, but were missing what was going on in its impact on military operations, or people that, hey, I, I only care about business. Well, guess what? You know, this issue that seems like it's an elections issue is hitting you too. So, so I guess the, that person that I said, oh, you should be in in science fiction, with they were right in some sense. Yeah, they got they got the they got it right that I did go write um, fiction. However. Uh, that was only after, you know, that was not on that topic. Um, uh, so, you know, their their idea that uh, there weren't going to be private military companies. I think, uh, you know, the facts would bear them wrong. But um, I did move into doing a fiction project, uh, Ghost Fleet, but with a with a twist. Um, you know, it's a it's a novel. Um, the tagline of it is a novel of the next world war. Uh, it's, of course, fiction because it's set in the 2020s. But what made it different than than other, um, you know, like a Tom Clancy novel is that it had over 400 references in it. So there was a rule uh, that we, we followed is anytime there was a technology, a place, even a kind of military tactic, 
we would have a footnote reference like nonfiction book style to here's where there's a real world version of this. You may think this thing sounds like science fiction, but here's where it's you know already operating or here's where no one could carry out that kind of attack. Well, here's where the United States did it against someone else. Are we going to be so arrogant as to think that someone else might not do it against us? And I think that that, that combination, um, you know, for some people, the book was just a, a fun vacation read, um, you know, to, to read at the pool or, you know, at the beach. Um, but for other people, it was, whoa, hold it. Here's this could happen. Um, and so we, we looked at it as uh, we called it useful fiction, the idea that you could um, entertain people but simultaneously inform them um, and then, as we've seen it play out, even help head off some of the scenarios that you have in the book. So, you know, there's some kinds of fiction that um, shape the future by making it come true. Um, you know, the classic example of this would be, you know, the 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 scientist who was watching Star Trek during a break and then went, oh, I'd like to build a, you know, a, a communicator. And they, they invent the, the um, flip phone. Um, uh, but you could also have fiction that maybe makes the future not come true when there's you know some kind of bad scenario. And then. A, a senator, an admiral, whatever, reads it and goes, that is a nightmare scenario that I don't want to have happen. Here's what I'm going to do to prevent it. I guess Ronald Reagan and, and, and um, War Games is the most... Ronald Reagan thing. is a great example of both uh, the uh, Star Wars and then trying to make Star Wars come true with space-based lasers. Right. Um, and then the other would be, as you mentioned, the, the reference of War Games where he watches War Games and then that's part of the story of how we get some of the very first uh, cybersecurity policy. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a great example of both ways. So, so you've kind of, in a way, created a new form there and, and, and you've kind of used, I guess, the imagination to bridge between the facts or the historical truth and, you know, an imagined future. Um, is that something you think about doing again in your future work or? Yeah, we're um, exploring another uh, take on it that's that's going to play with some of these ideas um, of uh, fictionalized scenarios of the future. But again, our... It'd be, it'd be a lot easier if you could just wave your hands and say, you know, there's this new energy thing that solves everything or there's this new, you know, uh, alien technology-based weapon. You know, we, we, we have to – our approach, and I'm saying our – doing uh, – August Cole was the co-author on Ghostly. Our approach is no vaporware. Um, you know, again, it's got to exist in some way, shape, or form, and that means that it's grounded and more useful – um, you know, I, I, I love, you know, the fiction that's, you know, 200, 300 years out, but that's not going to be useful because it, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, um, you know, had the, the saying that, you know, any, any technology that, or any story is kind of more than a generation ahead. You're really in the realm of magic You're And um, that's that's kind of I want to stay in that that period. Uh, it's probably harder to write, but um it's uh, hopefully more useful, but you, it can still be entertaining. And that, that, that you know, again, um, people, the, the, the challenge of this useful fiction space is you have to satisfy two masters, right? It can be really useful, but if it's not entertaining, then you failed. The flip side is um, it can be entertaining as hell, but, you know, if you get something, you, you get it wrong, 
um, or it's not grounded, then it's not gonna it's not gonna accomplish the task of informing. And so, do you, are you gonna be able to catalog your process this time when you write this one, so that we can all learn from what you two have done, or is it? Like- uh, I don't know about that. Um, you know, we, I think we're more conscious of it than we were in our first attempt. Um, you know, the reality was uh, while we looked at it through this double space the publisher you know they still got to put it in the in the in the, in the fiction aisle right so um that's that's you know they they have to lean more on on one angle now we've come to this the shared realization of um you know i don't think i'm i'm doing anything wrong by speaking on their behalf they were pleased and surprised by both Hey, this is selling well, well, but you're testifying to Congress about our novel, <laughs> or you know, I mean, when when you do like the endorsements of novels, you know, it's normally other, you know, another thriller writer says it's great, and then we're coming in like, hey, the commandant of the Marine Corps says everyone should read this novel, and they're like, that's awesome, but how did that happen, right? And so that both parties have kind of come to the the awareness of this and going hmm you know is there something can we be a little bit more conscious about it as we move forward so that's potentially you could um be developing a new theoretical form so you'll probably end up teaching um this as a professor i don't well we we've had one there's this idea of it's a it's a it's a type of genre um in terms of if you think as far as i'm aware the idea of using you know footnote style references in a novel in the past has only been within the fictional framework so it's the you know either lord of the rings style where you know there'll be a footnote that tells you you know hey aragon is actually the grandson of blah 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 you know it or, or David Foster Wallace. You were just idea. I was just gonna say that. <laughs> yeah. The the it's idea of doing like a second story within it. There's not the literal nonfiction style of you know, this is more than just um sources that the the author, you know, in the in the back for further reading. This is literally when this technology is mentioned or this attack or this place, just like you would in nonfiction, here's the reference to prove that it is real, to and to give you a place to go for more information on it. I'm not aware of other um, uh, ones that have done that. And it's funny because when we, when we started it, we had a lengthy debate with us, with the publisher, as to whether to do it or not. And now in retrospect, it was like, you know, why were we even debating? It was kind of part of the, the what made it different. So, um, it, like... Is there a is there a pro like so you have to kind of think as an adversary as well in a sense so it's kind of like war gaming but in your own head. Well, it's 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 again you go back to the the nonfiction element of it. Um, you are using all the methodologies uh, that you would in nonfiction and 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 I think in, in good nonfiction multiple methodologies uh, in terms of you know you're you're bringing in. Um, you know, uh, text references, everything from, you know, books that might be from a variety of fields, history, psychology, um, but you're also pulling in, you know, the latest news item 
um, on, you know, whatever, the, the next Russian sniper rifle to, you know, uh, Amazon delivery drone, whatever that is. But then you're pairing that with interviews and discussions with the people who will populate that realm, right? So, you know, for Ghost Fleet, um, part of why it had a sense of realism is that, you know, we had discussions with everything from, um, you know, one of the characters was a U.S. Navy ship captain. We had U.S. Navy ship captains that we talked to, to there was a scene where there was a um, uh, futuristic jet fighter dogfight. You know, we interviewed pilots, fighter pilots on, okay, if you're in this situation, you know, what move would you pull or what would you do against this adversary? Um, and so, you know, you're populating the insights of those real world people. Uh, and so that combination, I think, um, moves it from just the, you know, I dreamed it up to no, you know, you're getting these different insights. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but in like what you talk about, uh, sort of planned authenticity, I'm wondering if maybe, um, you know, do we, this part of your work hit a key with the universe partly because we are in this sort of faction, factional world, like a faction reality in a sense anyway, which you're sort of plugging into? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, I think it depends on the, the, the type of work. So, you know, the reception to a fiction is different than nonfiction. Um, I think the fiction uh, connects across, uh, it, put this, um, it is more challenging now in current affairs, political science, nonfiction, uh, particularly on a topic like social media, for it to um, array across the body politic, right? Because, you know, so the example would be you tell the story of Donald Trump's very first tweet, you know, 60% of the population is going to have an emotional response to it that's different than 40%, even if it's literally just, here is his first tweet, right? Here's the fact of it. Um, and versus uh, sometimes the, you know, fiction, particularly if it's like move forward, uh, you can, a, a wider um, array, people are not... It, going to put it into that that pre-existing framework that they have all right cool all right that's great thank you very much no worries thank you cheers that's this week's episode of password one two three don't forget to join me next fortnight for another episode and for more information just google unsw canberra cyber i'm tom sear thanks for listening